parts of the Hindu world, they have this holiday or celebration called Diwali. It's, it's a religious holiday. It's called the Festival of Lights. And it's a five-day celebration. And on the central day of the festival, people light up their homes with all sorts of hanging lights and candles. The women dress up in these beautiful saris and traditional clothing. Gifts are given to everyone in the family. There's actually fireworks. The streets come alive with vendors of all kinds. Candies and sweets are everywhere. It's sort of like our Christmas, our July 4th, and our trick-or-treating all in one. It's pretty special, actually. And I'll never forget the first time I participated, well, didn't participate, actually, but the first time I was in India and Diwali was going on all around me. It was pretty amazing. One of the more religious pieces of the holiday, in certain regions anyway, this isn't consistent throughout all the regions of the world, but certainly where I was in northern India, one of the more religious purposes of the holiday is to please Lakshmi. She's the goddess of wealth. And you want to please her so that she will visit your home and shower you and your family with blessings. Some of the rituals for this, you have to clean the entire house because she loves cleanliness and she will visit the cleanest house first. You need to put out candles to light the path to the house and you need to place the correct food on the offering plate that is for her to enjoy. And if all this is done properly, no doubt she will be appeased and will shower you and your family with blessings for the next year. So last week, we talked about this universal lie, this, this concept of appeasing God that humanity has bought into from the beginning of time. And while Christianity should be the leader in freeing people from this lie, sadly, it has often been a leading proponent of this lie. St. Paul wrote this entire letter to counter this lie. This is what Galatians is about, to counter this lie that has just been insidious and has moved into everyone's life. And this, in our text this morning, this is sort of the heart of this incredible, powerful argument. And so just as I encouraged you last week, I want to encourage you this week, try to, try to stay focused on this. It's, I'm, I'm doing my best to break down what I think is really complicated theology, and we're fighting ourselves in this. Believe me, I will say things this morning that I'm sure your brain will be like, I don't know about that, because we have lived so long with this need to appease God. It's deep in our DNA. And, but Paul here is getting really to the heart of the matter and the heart of the gospel. And so Paul is dealing with two sides of this appeasement issue. Two sides of this appeasement issue. The first is legalism, and that's appeasing God to earn our salvation. Okay? The thing is, that's often an easy one for Christians to understand. I don't know many Christians that think they are saved by works. But this is what we saw last week. Paul is also talking about what scholars call gnomism. The idea that a proper response, a proper response to God's saving grace is to be beholden to the law, which will please God and cause him to bless us. And this is really where most Christians embrace this lie of needing to appease God, even if we may not fully realize it. So I think what happens is we have this contradictory understanding of grace. 
It's sort of a permeating idea that God is into the bait and switch. You know the bait and switch? The airlines are into the bait and switch. The airlines advertise flights for 99 bucks until you see all the fees that are added. So by the time they charge a credit card, the $99 flight is actually $278, right? Well, we have this idea in our minds within Christianity that God is into the bait and switch, as though, hey, come on in, I love you, and I freely offer you forgiveness. But then the second we come in, it's all of a sudden, you know, oh, wait a second, gotcha, I actually don't like you at all very much. But, but if you appease me by strict adherence to the law and the rules, then I will put up with you. Bono says it this way, you say love is a temple, love a higher law, you ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl. Now, here's the thing, I'm not saying we actually consciously think this about God. You're not going to go into a church and hear that ever, ever preached, I hope, if you do run. But my point is, I think we have heard so many theologies that paint this exact picture or we have so many fears based on this ancient lie of needing to appease God that we just can't escape it. And before we know it, we're back in bondage to the law and we demand everyone else's too. And that's where it gets dangerous. We end up believing and sharing a gospel that is no gospel at all. That is no gospel at all. So, I think the place to start breaking free of this lie, and this is what God's been doing with me for the last 15 to 20 years, is grasping Paul's great confession. This is the greatest confession in Scripture. I think this is even bigger than St. Peter's confession. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We talked about how incredible this is that in the middle of Paul's beautiful rhetoric and this incredible argument for grace, he, he breaks down into this personal confession, me. So we've all heard God loves us, especially those of us sitting here. We've all heard God loves us, and we, most of us claim to believe it. But my question is, do we really believe it? This is my question that I've had to ask myself over the years, and I'm asking you to ask yourself. Do we really believe this? Believe it as Paul did, that God loves me. This is the transformative power of the gospel. This is how Saul became Paul. So Saul had become this legalistic, hungry, religious leader who was doing all sorts of horrible things because of that, including killing. Okay? The first time we meet Saul in the Bible is they're stoning Stephen to death. And Stephen is living out this incredible forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we meet this young man, Saul, who is watching the cloaks of the religious leaders who are throwing stones to kill someone. And it says, and Saul was pleased. So this is Saul. Then one day on the Damascus Road, God showed up, God showed up and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when you read this scene in Acts, and I'm, I'm, I know we've all read it, we've all been there, but it's an unbelievable scene. Here is this guy killing people. He's a horrible human being. And God shows up and just says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? There is no talk of Saul's immorality. There's no talk of Saul's ethical shortcomings. There's no talk of God's holiness being offended by what Saul has been doing. 
He just wants to know why Saul is persecuting him. Then there are three days of blindness and silence that followed that meeting. Which I believe Saul learned one thing during that time. God loved him as he was, not as he should be. God died for him even while he was at his worst because that's what love does. And I believe that's exactly what Paul learned in those three days. And according to, Saul, according to Paul, in the three years that followed where he didn't deal with anyone. Remember at the beginning of the letter in Galatians, we saw this a few weeks ago. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So I'll spend three days of silence and blindness, and I believe this is exactly what Jesus Christ was telling Paul, I love you as you are. And interestingly, because this is what Paul teaches, is God didn't reintroduce him to the law, didn't tell Paul of his need to submit to it. There was only talk of how broken Saul was and how much God loved him and wanted to heal him. And from that came salvation and transformation. So the question is, do we really believe this? Is our life marked by ongoing transformation into Christ-likeness? And that might be small, that might be a little bit at a time. But is it, is it marked by ongoing transformation into Christ-likeness, into self-acceptance as one of God's beloved, and a freedom to love others fully? Is our life marked of that? See, that's all one incredible, interrelational, beautiful thing. Most of us have a lot of trouble accepting ourselves, right? Loving ourselves. There are days when, man. That comes from this profound need to be loved as we are. That's where that comes from. We spend our lives wanting to be loved as we are. And we learn that from the time we're little, right? And so when our children are little, when we're little, very, very early on, we're loved unconditionally, and then the conditions just come. You can't, you can't help it. The conditions just start coming. We do this to our own kids. We do it to our spouses. Those early, heady days of love when you don't think about yourself, you think about the other are wonderful, aren't they? And you feel so good because no matter what you say or do, the other person's like, yeah, let's have dinner again tomorrow. Really, you still wanna have dinner with me? Yeah because we're not thinking about ourselves. And then we get together, and then we get married. And then all of a sudden, we're not so much thinking of the other person anymore. And conditions start, and expectations start. And we live in a world of condition after condition after condition. And if we think God loves us that way, then no one loves us without condition, and therefore we loathe ourselves, and we don't accept ourselves. Because we've never been accepted. Remember, hurt people hurt people. Okay? So if we go through life thinking God doesn't love us, and that's the only opportunity for unconditional love, how are we ever going to love ourselves? So there's this beautiful thing. Once we know 
how incredibly loved we are, that's where transformation starts to come. Because if we know we truly are accepted as we are, then we can start accepting ourselves. Then we can start loving others. It's this incredible gospel good news. So, is our life marked by that? Or are we always questioning how God feels about us? Are we always doing our best to make God think well of us? Here's, here's, here's a little thing that you can ask yourself. Do we pray when we are at our moral worst? Or do we only pray when we are at our moral best? That's a big question to ask. What is your relationship with God like when you are at your moral worst? Now hopefully, here at Canaan, we, this is an easy one to answer, but at what point in your life did you realize you could take communion at your moral worst? How long in your life did you take communion only at your moral best? as though this was a reward for you for being good during the week. That's not what this is. This is proof that only God saves us. We need this. So, do we truly desire to be like Christ, or do we simply try to follow the rules so we will receive God's blessings, or at least avoid his judgment? These are, these are foundational questions of what Christianity is. If it is the latter in any of those things, then that is being trapped in the lie of needing to appease God. And instead of Christmas and Easter, we should celebrate Diwali. Honest. We don't need to celebrate it to Lakshmi, but we should celebrate it to Jesus Christ. Because if that's what our relationship with God is, trying to appease Him, then let's make sure our holidays... Follow the need to appease. Here's what has helped me over the years. Oh, went by. To understand Paul better. This vital truth. Okay? So Jesus says, I came from the Father and entered the world. That's the incarnation. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. There's the crucifixion and resurrection. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ's death was voluntary. This is huge to get inside of our theology. His death was voluntary. He wanted to die for us because he loved us. Jesus did not have to die for us. This is what separates this story from all others. This is it. Here's where we meet the rub of Christianity. All religions are basically the same. And a lot of Christianity is basically the same as other religions when we are teaching appeasing God. But where Jesus Christ is separate from all other religions is only here. He chose to die for us. He wanted to die for us. If Jesus died for us because he had to, if God the Father was some violent, angry, myopic God that demanded his son die to appease him, and then he could somehow condescend to think a little better of us, if that's true, then I suggest to you in all seriousness, 
we should remain completely committed to our pagan ways. We should put out as many offerings as we can to appease God, and we should do everything in our power to please God, and then hope he will visit mercy on us. And if it is true, we should be afraid, very afraid. For a God that demands to be appeased by humans is by definition a God that could never be appeased by humans. If there is a God, a God, think about this, a God that created this ginormous, unfathomable, unthinkable universe, if that exists, if that God exists and is demanding to be appeased by us, be afraid. It's never going to happen. And every religion that has come up with any way of appeasing him is a great big fat lie. You don't make a God like that happy. Or pleased. Or appeased. How could you? How could we? Think of the arrogance of religion. That we could appease something that big and powerful. Think of that. I, the more I have thought of this as I've been studying Galatians, it has, I have been horrified that, at the level of arrogance in me that I could ever appease God. It's self-worship at a monumental scale, isn't it? But... If Jesus died for us because he wanted to, because God loves us before we appeased him, before, before, well, that changes everything. See, that means in his mind, we are worth his life. I just said that. We are worth his life. And that's not pride that makes me say that. In fact, pride keeps us from saying that. Pride, this false humility. Pride wants him to love us because of what we do. Faith, the opposite of pride, says he loves us because of what he does. See how different that is? He loves his creation. That's why he saves us. And that might be part of the problem. We have sort of lost the definition of what salvation means. Okay? So here's, here comes the part of this morning that I've been really excited all week and I've been working to try to say this the right way. The more I've studied the history of the salvation narrative, okay, it becomes very clear that it has changed over the centuries. Radically changed over the centuries. And for us especially, who born here and now, and have been so highly influenced by Christian theology that is about 500 years old and no more, we tend to be very influenced by more modern concepts of salvation. Salvation has become almost exclusively understood within certain circles of Christian theology as some sort of morality corrective. All right, let me, let me try to explain that. It sounds like this. Humanity failed the moral test. And so God needed to save them from grotesque immorality and ethical perversion. 
God is sinless after all, and sin is an abomination to him. That's a true statement, and I'm fine with that. But then the theology says, because sin is an abomination to him, he devised a plan in which he could remove the abomination of sin and then set the saved on a path of moral and ethical superiority to better please a holy God. There's a very commonly understood salvation narrative within Christianity. And if that is what salvation is, if that is what salvation is, then naturally a theology to support a return to the law after salvation makes sense. Legalism makes sense in that theology of salvation. That's why it's so easy to believe in. And it makes sense. If we were separated from God due to our own moral failures, and he bridged the gap initially with salvation by grace, we all love that, but then that theology says it is up to us to maintain the new relationship through superior moral living and towing the line of the law. And if we don't, then we will be judged and punished. If we do, he is appeased and will bless and accept us. All right? Maybe that sounds familiar. Maybe not those exact words, but maybe that's, yeah, that's, that's the salvation narrative. That's what I've always thought. But is that what Scripture says? I want you to think about this now. If we go back to the beginning, to the story of our beginning as found in the scriptures that we come up with all this theology from, if we go back there, we find this. We were made because God wanted to make us. And having made us, he seemed to really delight in us and delight in giving us a world to be delighted in. It's a beautiful creation story. Both of them actually are beautiful creation stories. They're beautiful and they're wonderful. And that's the sense. If you read it, it's all about wonder and beauty and mystery and us enjoying what he's given us. He had us participate in naming the animals. How fun is that? And he gave us this incredible world to just be delighted with. And wow, all of existence is this wonderful mystery of grace. All of it. I think, you know when we get blown away and we get overwhelmed with, oh my gosh, bad thing happened to me? A big part of that, I think, comes from we are now entitled to everything. Right? We're entitled to this. Life is no longer grace and mystery and beauty. It's an entitlement. Therefore, anything that interferes with that entitlement, oh my gosh, how could this be? Whoa, what? What? That's not the creation story. The creation story, it's grace. We're not entitled to anything. We're just given. Just go and live and, and be wonderfully amazed. We were simply to enjoy God and everything he made. And if you read the creation stories carefully, there are no ethical or moral strings attached to our existence. None. In fact, in fact, the one condition he gave us, which wasn't a condition at all, but a simple revelation of how we as creatures worked, was no knowledge of good and evil. Right? Sort of like the soup Nazi. No soup for you. <laughs> there will be no knowledge of good and evil for you. 
That's it. And I want you to think about something. And if you tar and feather me later or fire me, fine. But I'm going to say this. When you really think about this right here, this is actually the opposite of moral and ethics. Think about it. God's saying, listen, I've given you everything. The one thing you're not going to have, and I don't want you to have, is the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to have it. You don't want it. Just live without it and enjoy this incredible creation I've given you. We were basically given everything just to enjoy without the prison of knowing right from wrong. But we so wanted to be gods. Ugh. We insisted on that knowledge. And that was the opening of the proverbial Pandora's box. And, for, and we were forever lost to simply being creatures enjoying God and his creation. And from then on, we have been trying to earn our way back into paradise by being good enough for God to welcome us back. Here's the lie of that idea. Being there in the first place was never about being good enough. There's where the fall in creation story have been so misused to just keep people in line. We were there simply because God wanted us there and made us there and gave it to us. That's the creation story. When we became lost, it wasn't some... Being lost was not a form of punishment for being immoral and unethical. We were lost, and that certainly led to being immoral and unethical. But the lostness was not punishment. It was our new sad and horrible reality. That's what the lostness was. And then we were cast from the garden. How many of you over the years, subconsciously or maybe even consciously, have equated being cast from the garden with being cast from God's presence? It's not what the story says. God's presence is everywhere. He didn't cast us out of his presence. He put us out of the garden. And putting us out of the garden was the most incredible act of love and mercy ever. It wasn't punishment. Here's why, according to God, he put us out of the garden. So we would not eat. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. There was a tree of life and there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And once we ate the knowledge of good and evil, we were lost. And had we eaten of the tree of life, we would have been lost forever. And God said, wow, I love them way too much. I'm not going to do that. Out. It's beautiful. This is the most amazingly beautiful story. And it has been so twisted for power-mongering purposes and other things, and I'm sorry. And I'm sorry for me. I, it, it's taken years to work through all of this stuff. See, God knew there was going to be another tree someday. And we'll eat of the fruit of that. And then we wouldn't be lost. Beautiful. We weren't thrown out of the garden because we were suddenly so immorally despicable to him that he couldn't be with us. We were lost to him because we were lost to ourselves and we were now unable to maintain the depth of authentic relationship. We knew right from wrong 
and we were doomed because of that knowledge. So God, because of his love for us, not just in some general theological sense in us, but his love for me and you individually, came and found us. He died to get us back. Died so we could have his life in us, healing our brokenness. Salvation, then, is not some regrettable action God takes because he was forced into it by the death of his son and then puts up with us as long as we are moral and ethical. It's not, this, this, it's not what we do when our dog rolls in manure and we clean him off so we can come back in the house. That's not what salvation is. And then if the dog does it again, we let him sleep outside all night. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is being found, healed, and shown a better way so maybe we don't need to keep rolling in the manure. Right? But even if we do, we are still loved and welcomed in the house because it was never about the manure. And this is key. It was about what made us even want to roll in the manure in the first place. We were lost... And that causes our immorality and our lack of ethics. If we were never lost, we never would have wanted to sin. So why would God focus on the sin when it is being lost that causes it? There you go. There's the shift from religion to Christianity. This is what Paul is getting at. And we're going to be exploring as we go through this beautiful letter. It's like this, and I love this. And I stole this from Shane Claiborne. A farmer taught me there are two ways to keep cows in a field. One is with gates and fences. And the other is with amazing water and food right in the center of the field. And when I took my daughter to Ireland in January and I've been in Scotland before because that's where all my family is. We went over to see my family and there aren't fences and gates keeping cows. They just go from field to field. They know where to be and when to get home. Because why? There's water and food. The gospel of Jesus Christ is we have water and food. We don't need fences and gates. And here's the thing. If you need fences and gates, then you don't know about the water and food. And I don't care what anybody says. Anyone who needs fences and gates to keep in line and to continue to move into Christ-likeness has never met Jesus Christ. And this is what the whole letter of Paul is going to be about. He wants us to be transformed. He wants us to live some way. But it's not through fences and gates. It doesn't work. He wants us changed from the inside out. The biblical narrative for salvation is that we are lost and a loving Father finds us and brings us home simply because He loves us and keeps us home simply because He loves us. Period. All the other things we can do that are good are good for us too. But we don't have to appease Him. We can't. From Genesis to Revelation, that is a story. We are lost and God finds us. That's a beautiful story. Any other reading is caused by the lie that we can and must appease God. So, to wrap up, 
Salvation solely because of God's love and grace is a beautiful and wonderful story. But I think we reject it and embrace the lie of appeasement instead because the idea that it is all grace goes against our pride so much. So we rewrite our own abilities back into the story. But that just takes us out of grace, takes us out of love, out of the only thing that can save us and transform us. To use that illustration again real quickly, think about it. Cows that are constantly fighting to get out and need the fence and gate to keep them in, they're never going where the water and food are. If that's what we're doing to ourselves and to each other, we're so far away from the water and food of the gospel, what's the point? And I think that's why Christians can be incredibly unchristlike and can hold positions and theologies that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ because they're not going to Jesus Christ. They're just sticking to their laws and their rules. And the laws and the rules have become God. And as far as God goes, that's like, no, not the story. You see what I mean? But if you're in Jesus Christ, now things start to change. Because that's where we learn what he wants. The only thing that can save us and transform us is grace. Love. Knowing we are loved. That is why Paul said, if we can do any of this on our own, then Christ died for nothing. If you don't need Jesus Christ to be like Christ, then he died for nothing. And what's the point? You see? But because we can't, then all we have to do is receive this love. Paul explained receiving love this way. I really like this line here that he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Listen, this is not an abandonment of who we are as individuals and who we are uniquely. God made us who we are, and he loves us. To die with Christ is simply a surrender of the lie that we are in the appeasement business. And let his life transform us because we finally and fully acknowledge that he is in the grace business. Might God help us all believe this. Amen.